For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Herd Tell. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, we did this last year on the 4th of July. Might make it a tradition, so it's fun on Independence Day to talk to one of our Brit friends, Ben Harris, back on the program once again. Thankfully, not wearing an Aston Villa jersey that he rips <laughs> on and takes his sweater off right as I press record. Thank you for not doing that, my friend. Welcome back it's okay. to Herd it's Tell. Out of, it's, it's out of season. So. Is there any such thing for uh, a Villa fan, though? You guys are always yeah, hoping for the new day, right? Yeah, yeah. well, it's... um. I mean... It wasn't too bad last season. We had some ups and downs, but uh, this new season starts in ooh, about a month and a half now, so not a long way. So um, we made some good signs, though. So I'm quietly confident, but we'll see. That'll probably be obliterated by September. Yeah, one nice thing about um, being a, a soccer football fan is the off season is very short, especially in a World Cup year. It's pretty much non-existent, so that's a good thing. Um, all right, buddy. Well, this, do- well, this year it's uh, well. I was just to say this year the World Cup is um, in November, December, so it's it's really crammed in the middle. It's not usually like that, but it's because yeah. it's in Qatar. So, yeah, and we're going to be talking plenty about that when that happens. But um, by the, by the way, we've got England in the first round, I believe, um, in the group stage. Uh, the US I'm looking forward to that. Do. Yeah, so that's that's going to be. A I think fun I actually one. might want I might want America to win because I don't actually like the English football team. If it was rugby, rugby, I'd support England any day, but football. See, here we go. The hot takes are coming already. We haven't even dug in yet. Okay, it's the 4th of July. We did this last year. Uh, For folks that don't know, you've actually done quite a bit of work. You did your university work on the special relationship between England and America. It's pretty unique in world history. We've had, we've had, England's got a pretty good relationship with most of what used to be the empire, most of the old colonies. They're allies with almost all of them. Talk about for a minute, though, it is pretty unique in the history of the world what America and Britain has done together in the last, oh, I don't know, 240 odd years, isn't it? Yeah, I can't think of a, I mean, I guess it's, I can't think of, I mean, maybe there is, I mean, I'm not an expert in history, but I can't think of any period in history where you've had essentially the world's main superpower peacefully hand over to the, to the next one, which is what we did with the US. I mean, obviously, uh, we were in conflict with the US in the I don't know, 1700s, the 18, early 1800s. But when that handover actually took place, if you could call it a handover in uh, sort of the late, the late 19th century, early 20th century, it, it was very peaceful. We, 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 we were on the same side in the same wars. So it wasn't like very right throats. And usually it doesn't happen. Is it even comparable? And again, we're not history guys. We're just guys that, you know, admire each other's countries here. But, you know, it is interesting that you had, you know, the Pax Britannica. Um, era of peace and the naval dominance especially of the royal navy that made worldwide trade as we know it now you know the building blocks of that the americans been a little different it's been more economic of course militarily in world war ii and we you know the marshall plan and reset the world order and then the cold war it really is amazing that these two countries 
you know, for the last, what, 300, 350 years, this has been the dominance of the Western part of the world. It is. And I think it's probably language plays a lot of part in that because there's there's always that shared language. And obviously a lot of. Yeah. So it's you no, know, it is quite unique. And obviously, as you know, a lot of your um, your founding fathers, they took from British ideals, French ones as well. But there was a lot of British ideals there. And we and the Anglo-Saxon uh, sort of way of doing things is, is is very well known. So how does um how did you how does the British folks view? Uh, we make a big deal out of Independence Day, obviously. Uh, technology is such now with Twitter that you know they're probably more aware of it and think about it more than they maybe did ten fifteen years ago. Uh, is it just kind of a funny thing? How is it viewed when we really have our Independence Day? There's some good natured joshing, of course, about it. But what is the view of our Independence Day well, for over there? I think, aside from the, the good natured jokes, um, I think it's become more of a thing here than it used to be, probably because of social media. I mean, Black Friday, for example, is a good example. Black Friday, even when I was growing up, so talking, you know, 15 years ago, uh, even 10 years ago, Black Friday was not really a thing, whereas it very much is now. Not maybe not as much as it is in the US, but it is a thing now. And uh, I think it's so uh, social media down to that. And I think that's the same Independence Day. We do get a certain level of independence day stuff here not much but we do get a bit of uh independence day things and obviously there's always the, the jokes but oh, we, you'd be better off if you stand of the queen that sort of thing so um yeah I, I think it's social media has brought us together a little bit and we, we we're increasingly you're getting our trends and we're getting your trends it's so fascinating we were talking i was talking to another friend of ours online the other day and it, and there's kind of this running joke that america doesn't have a singular culture that it exports to the rest of the world and i was like well, that's interesting because the rest of the world sure does copy a lot of it and complain about it a lot. So there must be some kind of American <laughs> culture. What do you see it, especially in England, where, you know, there's the common language, there's the history. There's a lot of overlap there, obviously, when it comes to social media, because we can actually talk to each other because there's no language barrier. Mm. What is the American culture creep in England? You just mentioned that we're crossing cultures. Some. What's some of the obvious examples that you see over there that we probably don't think about? Well, I think the main one is uh, politically. There's a political culture crossover, and and a lot of Brits get really get really arty about this, and they start going and rants about the American Empire and stuff. But this isn't something America is doing um, consciously. But we do get a lot of American cultural wars do tend to transport themselves here. My and I have actually said this a year ago, but when I remember when the the Black Lives Matter protests were happening, um, we were getting similar things here about you know the police even though the police uh and the, in the uk is totally different to policing in the us you don't really get uh, police officers killing civilians it just doesn't happen at all i know it happens in the us you know depending on the situation it happens you know, a fair bit but it just doesn't happen at all we're, we're, even then during the protest people were still acting as if the police here were killing you know people every day that just doesn't and the certain to a certain extent the race stuff as well even though again it's a different story now it's not saying we're better or worse but there is a different history there. I don't think that's being taken into account. Let's talk media too, though. Um, the British press has always had their own flavor of doing things, but I've seen mm. a lot of cross pollination there lately. Our press has gotten, you know, especially the tabloidish uh, British media. We see a lot more that, you know, our TMZ and things like that are kind of more of that model than traditionally. And I've seen kind of the political media, you know, we're having an explosion, a lot of alternative networks, a lot of alternative news sites in British media. That's more of an American influence, I think. Mm. I think even in the straight news world, and of course, the BBC is partially publicly owned over there. So we need to get that out of the way. So the competition's a little different than in America. Yeah. But I, I think I think there's some very clear examples there of cross-pollinations of culture when it comes, especially to the political media and how they're covering things, because it is a global yeah, right. media thing now. 
Yeah, the one thing I noticed actually in, in the last five years, especially, is the rise of what I would call the monologue. And personally, I don't like the monologue at all. Uh, I can't stand it. But even if you could do a monologue for 10 minutes and I would quickly agree with every single word of it, I still wouldn't like it because I just, people giving these monologues are just broadcasters and to us, I couldn't care less what they think, left or right or centre or wherever. But that's one of the big things I've noticed is we're getting a lot of monologues now uh, where these broadcasters will sort of read these scripts and they'll give this monologue, um, which I didn't notice. And obviously, it's, it's sort of the, was it Bill O'Reilly that did it? Used to do it on Fox. Somebody used to do it on Fox, and it used to be well known. For, we've been getting that, and I think also we've been getting from Australia as well. So I think Sky News Australia, um, they own now you know some media here, so it's it's sort of come across that way as well, not just from the US, from Australia as well. Yeah, it was funny because you know we have a we work with our Young Voices friends. They have a UK branch, and I started getting media requests, and they're like, "Hey, can you do Talk TV in Britain?" And I'm like, "What's that? I've never even heard of it." And then, you know, you have talk TV, talk radio, uh, GB News has started up now. It's not just, you know, BBC and Sky News yep. and Times Radio, which I've done Times Radio a few times now, which is, you know, exceptional. People don't realize the Times is the biggest newspaper in the world for the English language. Well, Times Radio is also new. Yeah. Times Radio but, is actually quite new. The Times yeah. obviously isn't, but Times Radio is new. Yeah. But that's a huge change. I mean, that's that would be like the New York Times here having its own media outlet, which they kind of do, but not to that level. Times, Times Radio is a big deal over there. And it's very interesting watching. This is all in the last yeah, three, yeah. four, or five years. Watching these media companies, these legacy news people, they find. I think they figured out to turn the corner in British media. Of okay, we've got to go digital. We've got to go multi-platform, just like the rest of the world. It's really been. You take something like the London, the Sunday Times. I don't know how long it's been in print. You know, hundreds of years. That's a pretty remarkable culture shift yeah. change for them, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, I, I think it is probably partially to do with the since Brexit there's sort of there's been an explosion in sort of interest among regular people in politics i've noticed it just some people i talk people people i know who aren't really political who are now more political and more aware of what's going on or you know sort of they they get more information because there is i guess it's infotainment isn't it infotainment is becoming a big thing over here it, it wasn't 10 15 years ago but it very much is now and obviously the you know, newspapers have to adapt to that because um, obviously, unlike you would know, obviously, unlike in the US, um, you know, sort of the newspapers are um, the national newspapers, which we, which we get, who they back in the election is a very big deal. It's it's traditionally seen there who the, the Sun, for example, when they back someone that's seen as a really big deal. And I don't think you have that in the US where the newspapers still hold such a big uh, hold over public opinion. Although, of course, the endorsements of the newspapers is sort of lessening in, in importance nowadays, because, as you say, social media is becoming all important. No, and to the point. I actually wrote a piece about it when it happened. The New York Times did this multi-day reveal of who their endorsement was going to be, which is as close to a national paper as America has. It's, you know, them and the Washington Post pretty much, all due respect to everybody else. They had this big reveal of who they were going to endorse. And the the elevator lady, who's the, the security lady in the elevator gushing over Biden, became the viral story of the whole thing and completely washed out the endorsement of the New York Times. That was the story. And it's such a <laughs> microcosm of how media works now that, and they did this gimmicky thing where they picked uh, Elizabeth Warren and uh, Gillibrand. They're like, well, maybe the best one. You know, they, they kind of bailed out. They didn't stick the landing in picking their yeah, endorsee. Yeah. But the, the viral moment was the real life closer to the working class woman in the elevator talking to Joe Biden. And it turned out to be, you know, kind of prophetic in how the campaign goes. So to your point, yeah, it, it's, it's very, very different here. You know, we almost roll our eyes at newspaper endorsements anymore because they're just not, because everything's digital media. Y'all kind of backwards where it's, it's just now catching up to digital media, but you can see a trend that way. I wonder if it's this, this is just me spitballing a little bit, but I've got to think because news media is a business, 
Right. And you've probably seen this working around Parliament a lot because you see them, you see when they set up on the green across the street, you know, you know, something's going on, right? There's no yeah. way they didn't look at the coverage and the clicks and the ratings for Brexit and go, hmm, this has been a lot of money for the last two, three years. We should figure out a way to keep this money train going. I think Brexit was an eye-opening moment to them on how they're going to cover things business model-wise going forward. It's got to be because they got great ratings for it because everybody was engaged in it. The whole country was very engaged in it. And when that goes yeah. away, your ratings go down. I think that has to be part of the media environment now in England, doesn't it? Well, I agree. I think I think one thing Brexit did do, and this is, it was a case for both Remain and Leave. I, I supported Leave, but I wasn't. You know, I vote Leave again, but I'm not like a 100% diehard Leave, no matter what. But, I, you know, the one thing about Brexit was it, it did highlight the culture culture side of things. Um, although the campaign itself was quite a policy one, the, the certainly in the aftermath, it's pretty clear that there's a Remain Britain and a Leave Britain, which actually has separate ideals on things, which actually have nothing to do with the EU. I mean, there are people who, who you know, probably are actually, um, you know, ambivalent towards the EU, but are staunch Remainers because of what they feel that culture represents, and likewise for the Leavers. So and I think, you know, media has tried to capitalise on that and they've they've sort of seen, well, this is this is where it's going now. Most nowadays people, I feel like nowadays um, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a higher, a lower, a lower ceiling, but also a floor for a politician's support. I feel like the, you know, it's, it's a lot less inflexible now than it used to be because of cultural wars. People are just going to back their side no matter what and they pick a side and they follow it like I do a football team. It's very similar to that. At least I feel like, as a sports fan, it very it feels very similar to how I back my teams. It's, it's this very tribal, well, I'll back on no matter what sort of thing. Yeah, and let's not get into uh, football and backing teams. We'll be here all day. Uh, ben Harris, our good friend over in the UK, <laughs> continuing the tradition of talking to, or as they call it, oh for two day over yonder, uh, American Independence Day, talking to our British friend. Um, we joke about it. One of the great honors in my life, though, and and I've got this on my mind because Woody Williams just died. That's the last Medal of Honor recipient uh, from World War II generation for mm. the American side. I, saw that, yeah. I remember I was, and it just happened by accident, I was in London for the 60th anniversary of D-Day. And I, I was actually, you know, uh, on the HMS Belfast. They were actually filming a, a documentary on the fantail of the ship. I got to meet some of the British um, veterans of that con. Just one of the real honors of my life. I'm just, just, just saying sitting and talking to these guys because they were all queued up to go do interviews and things. And just by happenstance, I got to talk to them. Um, that generation's almost gone. Uh, we're very aware of it in America, of course. Mm -hmm. Same thing in England. That generation is just about gone. I don't know what the numbers there are. We're down, we're down into the low um, 100,000s and dwindling quickly. Is, is there a sense in England as well? Because that's mm -hmm. kind of the last war we really fought together. Not that we weren't in you know, Afghanistan and Iraq and other parts of the world, but that's the one everybody thinks about is us coming to World War II, Britain standing alone, and yeah. the American came alongside. That's just a big part of the mythology for both of our countries. Uh, is there a danger of that sliding into history a little bit with that generation passing away? Is there an understanding of like, this is a title shift that this generation is almost gone and we're just going to read about them. We're not going to be able to talk to them anymore. Um, I don't think the special relationship or whatever you want to call the US-UK relationship will change much in relation to that. But what, the one thing I do feel, the one thing that will be the big change is uh, and hopefully it's not for a few years yet is when the queen dies because that will be she is seen as sort of the last remaining um sort of you know she actually did serve in world war ii uh, to an extent as a mechanic i think as a volunteer mechanic so and and she is seen as sort of the last uh, remaining holder from that time so i think when she does go that will be 
you know, that being and more than anything else a big thing because it will signal a sort of change of the guard. And as you like you said, it's the numbers are, are quickly dwindling. Um, you know, it's you know, I think I think to, to have it to have served in World War Two now, you have to be close to a hundred at least now. I mean, you get into that point now. So it's it's uh, unfortunately a last bit of history we're losing. But I think it's the, the World War Two because it's seen as the last good war. That is still in people's minds, and I think even people who who don't even have any family they spoke to who served in the wars, people who don't even have grandparents who were who are old enough to have served in it. I do think that it still is a, very much alive today because we do learn about it a lot in school. It's driven, it's driven to us a lot. You know, Winston Churchill and sort of the mythology around Britain and World War Two is a big thing here still. So I don't think that we will lose that talking point. I think that'll always be there because I know you guys also have a similar. Uh, you know, you see World War II as the last good war as well. And it's, it's you know, Korea is forgotten. Vietnam is, is sort of seen as the bad war. And it's it's very similar over here in terms of how you see the war, World War II. Um, so I don't think we're going to lose much. I, I lose much in terms of how we communicate with each other. But of course, the experiences that, um, the first time experiences, you know, that we lose will be, you know, impossible to, to value. Yeah, it's interesting because just in my lifetime, I'm not that old. I'm just, I just turned 42. When I was a kid, if you saw any elderly man, you basically assumed they were a World War II vet. That's how, you know, just you just assumed it. And now they're almost all gone just, just in the last 30, 40 years. It's just the way time works. It's a really fascinating thing. Uh, ben Harris, our good friend over in England, we're going to keep talking to him about England, about America, the special relationship, a little politics too, just because uh, he, he runs amongst the halls of parliament. So he's got all the good scuttlebutt. We'll touch in on that. We'll continue with our friend Ben Harris. His Independence Day edition of Her Tell right after You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.
Joe back on Herbstail. Ben Harris, our good friend over in the UK. Been talking just a little bit of history, uh, our shared countries on this Independence Day in America. Uh, you do work around Parliament and in the halls of mm-hmm. Parliament. Uh, so let's talk UK politics for just a second. Just an outside observer, we've been talking to our UK friends a lot lately because there's a lot of news on it. I'm just, I'm just going to make the general statement. On the outside looking in, uh, neither uh, Prime Minister Johnson nor the right honorable opposition in the form of uh, uh, Sir Keir Starmer and the Labour, neither one of these individuals are exactly covering themselves in glory right now. This this seems to be just kind of like y'all kind of muddling through a down period where it's like, well, Johnson's not great, but he's kind of Teflon and there's nobody else. So we're kind of stuck with him and Starmer's got his own problem. This kind of seems just like a little bit of malaise, this current period in uh, UK politics. Does it feel that way there? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's not just it's not just the leaders. I mean, he's a big improvement on Corbyn. I'll give him that. But he is he's very much failing to inspire people. And that's a lot of so many (laughs) Yeah, it is. And then Boris Johnson, of course, has so many personal issues. His problems aren't really uh, Policy-wise, they're, they're mainly just in, in a, getting things done in government because the government, it just feels so dysfunctional. And two, it's his personal life, which is, just keeps on intruding onto the job. Um, but it's not just that. It's also the, the MPs in general. There are a lot of MPs who it's becoming clear you know, should not be MPs. I mean, my boss is, is great. I always I always pick up for him. He's been, a, he's been an excellent boss. But there are lots of MPs who they just, you know, all the scandals we've had recently, both sides, they're just not a, not a cut for it. and they just all they seem to do is just focus on you know their, their sort of pointless social media stuff and you know they're um they'll get up in the chamber and they'll give us they'll give a speech about something they'll just blare out loads of inaccuracies and they get on scale it's just for social media it's not actually for anything else yeah this is it's interesting we're talking about cross-cultural stuff we got the same problem here I, we just had our buddy eric garcia on who covers uh congress for the independent of all things um and he talks about it and we talked about it on the show it's like you know there's basically two kinds of of Congress people and U.S. senators here because we have a bicameral House. House of Lords is a different beast for y'all. So basically, yeah. it's Parliament. Um, you have two kinds of people. You have the people that are there and they do the show and they do the the fundraising, and then you have a very small cadre of people who actually do the deals and know people and get things done and make the deals and move legislation. It's interesting that you're saying that because we have the same problem here. Is kind of the the media superstar Congress people when you talk to the reporters and when legislation goes through and you start looking at the headlines of who actually wrote it, mm. it's almost, it's almost always two different sets of people. And we've seen that here too. And I think it's social media because we have the social media superstars who play the public media part of politics. And then you still got the old school ones who go and they actually do the job. It's funny. It just seems to be universal in uh, parliamentary politics, doesn't it? Well, what would say actually is that I think uh, that doesn't have as much real effectiveness of how how systems work i know that in the u.s um party sort of the party line is nowhere near as strong as it is here here you, you know if you're an mp you've got to work with the government on most pretty much everything and if you don't you know that, that you're in big trouble whereas i, I know that there uh representatives and especially centers do get a bit more independence so um here it's you know they'll do the social media stuff but they'll still work with the government anyway so it's just yeah i don't i don't think we i don't think we would get as much of a slowdown in government as you would there but yeah, it does, it does slow things down. It does prevent problems from being resolved. Yeah. It's interesting just how the systems work because there's good and bad to that, that we have weaker parties, you know, we all have a two party system, but you got to remind people, it's like, yeah. yeah, but it's there. It, it's a great example. Of this was, I did, um, I was doing some British media uh, the, when the Uvalde shooting happened 
and they're interviewing you because they want the American and you have to just kind of slow walk them through. It's like with something like gun legislation, which we passed something that was, you know, kind of a middling piece of legislation, but you have to slow walk a UK audience through it because it's so different. It's like, no, Congress can't just pass a law. It's not like parliament where with a few legal exceptions, pretty much whatever yeah. parliament says, go like, that's not how it works here. Like, even if you got it through, there's still judicial review. There's still the executive branch. Like, you know, Congress can't just pass something that's a constitutional amendment through law. And I'm just using that as the example of it's a whole different mindset when you have parliament. Something like Brexit could never happen in America because you'd never get it through. And then it would be tied up in the Supreme Court for 30 years. And y'all got it done in a you relatively short States, period. And you had it through in a relatively short period of time. It's just a very, very different system. Uh, yeah, it is. I and mean, obviously Brexit, we almost didn't get it through. And I mean, that, that was that really did push it to the breaking point. I remember 2019, uh, 2018, sort of around that time, it was absolute chaos. Um, we had all sorts of norms being busted. And in fairness to Boris Johnson, he's not done much, yet, but he did manage to through. But even that was only done through an election. It was essentially some, but yeah, it's, yeah, it, it can be easier to get things done because obviously we don't have the state government. I mean, counties here, which are equivalent to your state, counties are basically, they don't have much control over anything. Certainly, you can't have different abortion laws between counties, for example. Yeah, and that's going to be a mess for the rest of the year, but let's leave that for another day. All right, uh, Ben Harris, our good friend over in the UK. All right, uh, real quick, the minute we got left here, uh, let folks know where to follow you on social media, um, because I love following you, even though you hate garlic, which is you know a major <laughs> character flaw, but we'll deal with that another. But one, one quick story from you on why you love America so much, even though you are a Brit. You, and despite it all, you're a Baltimore Orioles fan for some odd reason. I'll never understand. But let people know your social media and tell them just for our Independence Day why you love our America so very, very much. Oh, I don't know, really. I've always, I guess I've always consumed American culture since I was a kid, like most people do. Um, I think there's something about that more individualistic mindset that Americans have, which I really have always been drawn to. And you know, they say, you know, everything is bigger in America. And there is just so much there uh, when it comes to when it comes to sort of the land, the people, it is, yeah, it's, a lot of Brits are quite um, bitter towards America, but I don't see it that way. I mean, the way I see it, someone's got to do, you know, the, the world, you know, if it's not us, then, you know, it's better than you guys than anyone else, so. And uh, speaking of which, we got to get you over here soon for a visit, my friend. Oh, I would love to. I'd love to come over. Uh, West Virginia's on my list. I'm, I plan to visit every state. I've done eight so far, I think, in my life, so plus DC. So, uh, yeah, I will visit West Virginia someday and North Carolina. I can guarantee you that. Yeah, it's a great place. We'll be happy to host you. Um, don't get a whole lot of Brits there, so you'll be a, you'll be very popular, I promise you. Uh, <laughs> ben Harris, our good friend over in the UK, uh, the special relationship, uh, our friends over in England from whence we came. Uh, it just took us two wars and a couple of years to forgive everybody about it, but we're good friends now. Ben Harris, thank you so much for your time today, sir. Appreciate it. Hey, Thank you. Hotel. Fourth of July is a good time to bring up this story. Uh, CNN, a letter written by Alexander Hamilton, one of Americans' founding fathers. Yes, that's what he actually did before he became a musical. He was a real guy for uh, those of you from Logan. Thought Lost for Decades is finally going on display at the Commonwealth Museum in Massachusetts. Written by Hamilton in 1780 to the Marquis de Lafayette, 
The letter is believed to have been stolen from the Massachusetts State Archive during World War II, according to the news release from William Francis Galvin, Secretary to the Commonwealth. Hamilton, who was then the captain of the New York Artillery Company and sent the letter during the end of the Revolutionary War, Lafayette, of course, was a French aristocrat who was aiding the Americans in the fight against the British. In the letter, Hamilton warned Lafayette of enemy forces coming to Rhode Island and endangering French troops. An archive employee who stole the letter was arrested in 1950 and found to have sold it along with other documents to rare book dealers, according to the Massachusetts court filing. But in November of 2018, the letter emerged at an auction house in Alexandria, Virginia, before coming into custody of the FBI the following year. Uh, if you really, really liked um, National Treasure, this is some real life stuff here. The Commonwealth Museum, back to CNN. Fourth of July exhibit is the first opportunity the public will have to see the letter since it was returned to Massachusetts. The news release said the exhibit also includes original documents from the 18th century, like a letter from John Hancock to the Massachusetts Assembly announcing independence from Great Britain and a letter from George Washington to the Massachusetts General Court. Copy of the Declaration of Independence. Hamilton has gained renewed attention in recent years because of the pop culture icon due to the massive popularity of the Broadway musical. Trust me, my one kid listened to that thing on a loop for weeks. I know all about it. Anyway, cool Fourth of July story. Alexander Hamilton. No, I'm not going to sing about it. His letter is for display in Massachusetts. If you're up there, make sure you go check that out. You can also see it online. They have a digitized copy of it. Cool piece of history. More hotel on this 4th of July right after this.